this uh, this morning we're going to take a look at uh, someone in the Old Testament. Um, and if you, I'll, I'll have the verses on screen, but if you, if you want, you can follow along in your own uh, Bible. Um, so let's start with the reading. So starting in verse 1, 2 Kings chapter 5. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him Yahweh had given salvation to Aram. The man was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in marauding bands and had taken captive the little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish my master were before the prophet who was in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Then Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went and took his, in his hand ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten, ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, So now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now it happened that when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to put to death and to make alive, that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But know now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. Now it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call upon, call on the name of Yahweh his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away, uh, he turned and went away in wrath. Then his servants approached and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet spoken uh, with you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God with all his camp and came and stood before him and said, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So now please take a blessing from your servant. But he said, as Yahweh lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So just to give you an idea of where we are, it's, it's approximately 850 BC. And the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms, with Judah being the southern kingdom and Israel being the northern kingdom. Um, and the seat of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem, and the seat of the northern kingdom was Samaria. And so the, the exact location of Elisha's home is, it's, it's unknown. It was somewhere in the vicinity of the city of Samaria, which you see just under Kingdom of Israel on the map. And, and when we're talking about home during that time, um, it's not like a single family home that we would picture 
here in modern day, it was more like a small little compound. Um, and that, that was how some of the homes were, were designed back then. Because if you had a home, like a single family home, uh, in that area, you could be vulnerable to marauders, you could be vulnerable to raiders. So it was, there was safety in numbers. And uh, during this time, there was an uneasy peace between Israel and their neighbor to the north, Aram. And there were border skirmishes as well between the two. So starting with our first verse. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him, Yahweh had given salvation to Aram. The man was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So Naaman's main, uh, I'm sorry, Naaman's, I'm going to confuse that. Naaman's name means gracious or fair. Um, And to be the commander of the army meant that he was probably second second to the king um, in Aram. Um, And the king during that time was most likely a a king named Ben-Hadad II. And it's, it's interesting that Naaman, who was not of the nation of Israel, was being used by the Lord God to bring salvation to Aram. And, and it was through these military successes that God had granted him um, that Naaman became a man uh, who garnered respect for his military tactics. And he had respect from both the king and the people of Aram. But we're also told that, told that Naaman is a leper. And uh, leprosy in ancient times may not have been what we consider leprosy today, what today we call leprosy Hansen's disease, and it's a disease of the nerves. And and back in ancient times, uh, leprosy was seen as a disease of the skin, which they knew would would go under the skin, and it would eventually spread throughout the person's entire body and would become fatal. Um, But with today's medical technology, scientists can look at the microscopic level, and so they know the cell structures of bacteria and and viruses, whereas in ancient times, they didn't have the benefit of such technology. So the best way they could describe these diseases was basically that this is what it looks like. And some descriptions of leprosy are, are that it starts with tiny red spots on the skin that grow larger and turn white and look shiny or scaly. And then these spots spread throughout the entire body. And eventually, after time, hair would fall out. And then eventually, the fingernails and the toenails would start to crack, and they would fall out. And then the gums would recede, and then teeth would fall out. And eventually, even eyes, eyes, eyeballs would eventually rot and fall out, as well as other parts of the body. So could it have been a form of Hansen's disease? We don't exactly know. But since leprosy was something that God didn't find pleasing, it was clearly a bad thing. And just for some background, leprosy in the Old Testament was also seen as a metaphor for sin. And there's references, if you want to look it up, in Leviticus 13 about leprosy. And leprosy, just like sin, it, it starts to spread. I mean, take, take a, a sin like lying, and the more you perpetuate the lie, the worse it actually gets. And that's why it's seen as sin is, is sort of seen as a, or leprosy is sort of seen as a, as a metaphor for sin. So Naaman had fame, he had a reputation, and along with that came wealth. But none of that, uh, nor the king's doctors, could cure him of his disease. And as we'll see, Naaman had much more than just a, a physical disease to deal with. So moving on to the next set of verses. Now the Arameans had gone out in marauding bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were before the prophet who is in Samaria. 
then he would cure him of his leprosy. So the, little, the, the word used here for little girl um, means someone who's insignificant. And this is a contrast that, that the author is trying to draw between an insignificant little girl and a man who is seen as great and significant. And yet, this little girl who's considered insignificant ends up witnessing to the wife of a man who's considered of great significance. And this tells us that this, this little girl was bold and that she had faith. I mean, here we have a little girl who was, basically, she was taken from her home without, she was forced uh, to, um, and taken out of, out of her home, forced to be a, a slave, basically, for the wife of the kingdom's military leader. And yet she holds on to her faith even while in captivity. But she doesn't just hold on to her faith. She also ministers to someone who's an enemy. And, and how many of us have actually done that? How many of us have tried to minister to our enemies? How many of us have, have ministered to people who have hurt us? She knew that, that God could heal Naaman through the prophet Elijah. And Naaman hears this and it gives him hope. The, the, the testimony of a little insignificant girl gives this military commander hope. And some of us are small on the inside, like this little girl, but your faith, if you allow it, will make you just as bold as she is. So moving on to the next set of verses. Then Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went and took in his hand ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. So, so one reason the king of Aram sends a letter to the king of Israel is because Naaman would be traveling with a very large contingent through Israeli territory. So it, it's only appropriate to send a messenger um, ahead, of, ahead of this contingent to let the king of Israel know that they're coming. And ten talents of silver is about 750 pounds and Today's value of that is about $205,000. 6,000 shekels of gold is about 150 pounds, and today's value is about $3.3 million. And then who knows how much the clothing was worth. People in ancient times really only had one set of clothing, so the fact that he could spare 10 um, tells you just how wealthy it is. And we don't know how much the, cl the closing clothing was worth, but, um, but we can see how much... Naaman's healing is worth to him and the price that he's willing to pay. So moving on to the next set of verses. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, so now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now it happened that when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to put to death and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But know now and see he is seeking a quarrel against me. So the king of Israel at that time was most likely named Jehoram. And he receives this letter and maybe it was brought to him by Naaman himself or maybe one of Naaman's uh, messengers. And in the Bible, when someone tears their clothes, they're experiencing a lot of despair, a lot of distress, and a lot of grief. And this, this is something that kings rarely did, so it shows just how bent out of shape Jehoram is. And so we, we have the king of Israel here having a meltdown because he thinks the king of Aram wants to pick a fight with him. But what's actually going on here is a misunderstanding on the part of the king of Aram. 
Because the, the king of Aram believed, like a lot of people in ancient times believed, that the king of the land had control of the prophets of the land and could tell them what to do. So the king of Aram is automatically assuming that the king of Israel can tell Elisha what to do and go, heal, heal Naaman. Which is why the king of Israel panics, because Jehoram and Elijah are not on friendly terms. And when the king of Aram eventually finds out that the king of Israel can't order Elisha to heal Naaman, there's going to be a war. And according to some ancient uh, tales from, from Israel, uh, it was Naaman or someone in Naaman's army who killed Jehoram's father in battle. And now this enemy is already camped outside the city, so it won't take much to start a fight. But uh, the prophet Elisha hears this, and so he says, Now it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. So clearly, the, as I mentioned, the Elisha and the king didn't get along. And Jehoram, like the kings of Israel who preceded him, were not men who honored the one true God. Jehoram's father was Ahab, who was known as a worshiper of the pagan god Baal. And in fact, uh, Ahab had erected in the city of Samaria a temple uh, meant to worship the, the pagan god Baal. Jehoram's mother was Jezebel, who is probably known as the, one of the most wicked and, and probably the most wicked woman in the Bible. Um, and even though Jehoram wasn't as wicked as his parents, he still failed to get rid of the temples dedicated to false gods throughout Israel. So when he knows that Naaman is coming, he panics because he knows he has no favor with the one true God. And he, and he knows that the prophet of the Most High God is not on friendly terms with him. So Elisha says, well, send him to my home. So Naaman comes to Elisha's house with his horses and his chariots. And maybe you, you can imagine this image of um, the house maybe being uh, about, about as big as the, the worship hall we're in now, and suddenly the parking lot is filled with dozens upon dozens of horses and chariots and armed men, soldiers with swords and bows and maybe spears, all gathered right out there. And then suddenly their leader walks up to the door, um, and here's Elisha's response. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, behold, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of Yahweh his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in wrath. So there, there's a problem here in that Naaman goes to Elisha's house uh, for the same reason that many non-believers go to church expecting or demanding something from God. And then they walk away because they don't get what they want. And he has the ex Naaman has this expectation of how he's going to be healed and is instead insulted when the prophet doesn't even come out to meet him. And going through his head right now, he's probably thinking that, oh, this prophet is rude. I... Here I am, I'm standing at his door and he doesn't extend hospitality to me, a stranger, a visitor. 
He doesn't come out to meet me personally. He sends a messenger. Doesn't he know who I am? Hasn't he heard of my name before? I'm, I'm famous. I'm, I'm a big deal in the land. I'm a great military general. And, and of course, there's expected protocol uh, that needs to be followed when, when there is a dignitary visiting. Uh, they, it would be the equivalent of rolling out the red carpet and having people dress up in their best clothes. And then in Naaman's mind, the prophet's going to come out of his door in some type of shimmering light and says an incantation to heal the disease. But instead, all he gets is not the prophet himself. It'd be like John sending, well, if Oliver was here, it'd be like John sending Oliver to the door. Why don't you go talk to the guy who's about as big as the door there, filling out the door frame with his big sword? That's the reception that Naaman got. Um, and, and here's another reason why Naaman got angry. Um, so you see Samaria, you see Samaria, the city of Samaria in the center, and he's told to dip himself in the Jordan River. The Jordan River is 30 miles away from Samaria. So, that, that you can, you, so, he's, so Damascus is about 100 miles from Samaria. So Naaman has just traveled 100 miles. And now the prophet's messenger has told him, well, okay, go travel 30 miles to the east. Go, go dip yourself in, in, in the Jordan River and you'll be healed. So you, you can see why now he's flipped out as well. Um, and notice how Naaman says cure the leper. He doesn't say cure me. And it's as if he's distancing himself from his disease like a lot of people like to distance themselves from their sin. Um, they live in denial about it and often don't want to own up to it, um, even the small ones. And, and from what we can tell from this verse, the, the leprosy was actually being hidden by his armor because Naaman says, wave his hand over the place, which means it was being covered, which means it hadn't really started to spread that much. And it's like a lot, a lot, a lot of people, they like to hide things too. They like to hide their sin, keep it out of sight so that no one sees. And when we want healing or forgiveness, we often don't want to reveal that spot. We often want healing without revealing or, or forgiveness without repentance. And so Naaman thought that he knew how God was going to heal him and was upset when he didn't hear what he wanted to hear. And, and he thought that the cleaner waters um, of, of Damascus were, were the better place to be healed and because the rivers in Damascus were actually known to be cleaner and colder than the Jordan River. So Naaman is angry. He walks away. But his servants came near and said to him, my father, and that's just a sign of respect towards uh, either a head of a household or a leader. It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he, Naaman, went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a child, and he was clean. So Naaman's servants had talked some sense into him. They were, they were saying, well, you were expecting this large spectacle and, and maybe a, a voice thundering from the clouds and fire coming down from heaven, just like Elisha's predecessor, Elijah, did. And so you're, Naaman, you're a great man expecting great things. And 
And if the prophet had told you, well, go ride into battle, go, go slay the, 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 the Leviathan, go rescue the captives, you would actually do that because in your mind, a great miracle requires great spectacle and a grand quest and a ceremony and at the end, everyone, all the heroes get honored and they get blessed. But what his servants were actually saying is just simply obey. This thing is so simple. Just travel for 30 miles. Just do what he says. Go dip yourself in the Jordan River. And so Naaman does. He travels the 30 miles east of the Jordan River and he dips himself seven times and he's healed. And I'm wondering if you can all think of, think back to a time when you know God intervened in your life where it really wasn't spectacular. Was it just as simple as this? And it's interesting here that the word for little boy, which in Hebrew is na'ar katan, is actually a play on words because it's similar to na'ara katana. Let me, uh, there we go. Na'ara katana, um, which means little and insignificant. So it's like the author is trying to draw a contrast to highlight this massive um, difference between the little girl and the great man and then now Naaman becomes like a little boy after he dips himself in the river. He becomes more trusting, becomes more faithful and his eyes are open to the knowledge of who the God of Israel actually is. And so he returns. He returns to the man of God with all his camp and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know there is no God in all the earth but Israel. So now please take a blessing from your servant. But he, Elisha, says, As Yahweh lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And Naaman urges him some more to take it, but he refuses. So can you imagine what those 30 miles were like, the return trip from the Jordan River back to Elisha's home? What it must have been like for Naaman hope fulfilled, joyful adoration, thanksgiving. And here Naaman gives his testimony. He knows now that Israel's God is now the one true God, that there is none other like the God of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, and there never will be. And the reason Elisha tells Naaman to travel those 30 miles and dunk himself in the Jordan River is so that God, and only God, gets the credit and gets the glory for the healing. And this is also the reason why Elisha doesn't take, uh, doesn't accompany Naaman and his group, nor will Elisha take payment for what Yahweh has done, because all the glory and all the honor goes to God and God alone. So what can we learn from Naaman? I'll, I'll give you four points and then four questions. So the first thing is that he couldn't solve his problem his own way. So he had a false expectation of who God is and how God works. Um, he'd already created in his, in his own mind how Elisha would heal him. And when he first encounters uh, Elisha's messenger and he gets angry, um, Naaman says, behold, I said to myself. But then after he's healed, he says, behold, now I know. This is... This is a humbled person coming to faith in God. This is a, a person who realizes that he's not all, not all that he thought he was and that he's not always right. He thought that the waters of Syria were better than, than anywhere else, but 
those couldn't bring him healing. He thought that God was subservient to the king and that the prophet was subservient to the king. But now he realizes that God answers to no one and that we answer to God. So he couldn't solve his problem in his own way. The second thing is, he was witnessed to by the unlikeliest of people. So uh, how many of us ha have people like this in our lives? People who we, I mean, sometimes, sometimes we, we notice they're there. Sometimes we, we don't. Sometimes to us they may be like wallpaper as we go about our day. But, and yet there's something about them when they appear in our lives at the right place, in the right place and at the right time. And they tell us not what we want to hear, but they tell us what we need to hear. And so each of us is like the little girl or like Naaman's servants. We, we deliver God's message of hope and salvation. We, we don't deliver it with theatricality and fancy wording. We, we speak it plainly and honestly like they did. Um, our lives and our, our actions must also speak the gospel the same way, plainly and honestly. So the third thing is, Naaman's arrogance, position, and pride prevented him from being healed. So Naaman had a physical manifestation of a spiritual problem. The, the deep problem he had was sin. And sin at its core is going against the will of God, whether it's choosing your own way over something that's morally right, or whether it's choosing to mock someone who's hurting instead of being consoling and encouraging to them, or whether it's choosing to be selfish instead of generous. We, we all have this tendency uh, to, to want that we want to choose something that we want first, but a person who's being changed by the Holy Spirit starts to see selfish and sinful things as detestable. Naaman wanted healing on his own terms, not God's terms. He wanted it done his way through his money through whatever healers he had and through the vision of exactly how he pictured Elisha would heal him. And when a person like Naaman is full of arrogance and they're full of pride and they care more about their position and their reputation in life, they'll want things on their own terms because anything outside of that is a threat to their lifestyle. And they'll always be disappointed when they ask God and God doesn't answer or God doesn't give them what they want. God, through his word and through the Holy Spirit, wants to change people's hearts and to change their character above all things. He doesn't want to increase anyone's bank account or increase anyone's social status. He, he wants to change hearts uh, to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ and to, to have a heart that focuses on godly character instead of focusing on elevating a reputation or elevating social status in a community. And if a person's focus is on their reputation, then they'll do whatever the world says in order to maintain it. If a person's focus is on godly character as displayed to us in the Bible through the Lord Jesus Christ, that person will do what God says and will follow God's way instead of the world's. So Naaman needed to be humbled first before God would heal him. And his coming to faith allowed God to heal him physically and then work on healing him spiritually. God wasn't impressed by Naaman's reputation as a military leader or the fact that he had a huge army with him or, that, or all that money that he brought with him, those millions of dollars. God, God was moved when he saw obedience and genuine humility in Naaman. So the fourth point, 
Faith that does not lead to obedience is not a true faith. So when people say they're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, are they actually doing what he says? If they say they're following Christ, are their actions more of a reflection of them or of Jesus? Um, how, how many people do we know who were like Naaman before he was healed? People who, who go to church and say they're a Christian with their, with their mouths but clearly don't with their character. Obedience to God's will, doing the will of the Father, reveals who the genuine Christians actually are. Uh, this doesn't mean that we have to do it perfectly because none of us is capable of that type of perfection, but it does mean habitual. Obedient faith needs to become a part of your daily routine because if it's not, then eventually you'll just blow it off uh, like, like you, some people blow off a responsibility and you'll only remember it when you're in trouble. And so now just a, a few questions to ask ourselves. Is pride your stumbling block? Specifically, is pride your stumbling block in your relationship with God? So I'll, I'll submit that most of us are probably more prideful than, than we know, and, and we need to keep ourselves in check. Um, when our reputation becomes more important than our character before God, then we're, we're starting to live in dangerous territory. We all have to approach God humbly, and it doesn't matter what our title is or which family we're born into. It doesn't matter if we live on the streets or if we live in luxury or if you have a, a $100,000 car or if you've got a $10,000 car with years of, of payments on it. It's like no matter who you think you are, you're only a genuinely humble person will truly approach God. So we have to stop fooling ourselves into thinking that God would accept us any other way other than being genuinely humble and genuinely obedient. Pride and humility are polar opposites. It's, it's impossible to be a mixture of both. You're either going to be in one direction or you're going to be in the other. Second question. Are you too busy doing things your own way? So are, are you just going through the motions? Um, faith and trust in God is not like following a recipe in a cookbook and just doling out exact portions. You know, a little bit of humility, a little bit of tithing, maybe volunteering once or, once or twice a year, toss it all in the oven and it, it comes out perfect all the time. And re in reality, it doesn't. Um, does anyone remember Einstein's definition of insanity? Yeah. The exact same thing over and over again and yet expecting different results. And so we get angry when God doesn't do things our way, but he's, he's not going to. It's, it's God, God's way or not at all. And so the final question, where is your faith placed today? So why is it that when people face death or a crisis or a tragedy, or, or when they face an illness, that, that's the only time when they see what's important. And suddenly you're praying and you're reading your Bible a lot more or probably for the first time in a long time or, or you're reaching out to friends or family who you haven't seen in a while and, or who you didn't make time for. And we, we intentionally complicate our lives and then suddenly something sneaks up on us that's unexpected and maybe even devastating. And we, we like to think that faith is a complicated thing, and, and it's not. Christianity is very simple. Man sinned against God. 
a price that we're incapable of paying had to be paid for sin. In the fullness of time, God sent his only son, Jesus, who bore our sins on the cross and paid to God the Father the debt that we owed for our sins. And therefore, we who have placed our trust in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ and who believe in salvation through Christ and Christ alone, not works, we who believe that and trust in the saving power of Jesus no longer have to experience eternal death and separation from God. It's very simple. It's nothing spectacular. It's a very simple, it's a very simple thing to understand. So is your faith placed in the one who died on the cross for your sins and have you repented of your sins? Because you are never too proud to dip yourself into the forgiving waters of God's love. And this must be a daily action, a daily confession, a daily repentance, and the receiving of grace, and a daily promise to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So this isn't actually the last that we'll see of Naaman. Um, John is at, will be teaching next week on another aspect of the, of the resurrection, um, but we'll see Naaman again um, the first Sunday in May where this story actually continues. But uh, until, until then, remember that to keep the gospel, to keep the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ before you every single day, to remind you not just of the forgiveness um, and the debt that was paid, but, that, but to remind you of your redemption and to remind you of your spiritual healing as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ.